0: Now here's the challenge. Our brain, our ancient brain that 3 pounds of tissue that sits inside our skull, its dictum is survival. So it scans the world to find all the potential dangers, real and or imagined. And in doing so, it keeps us on alert. When that happens with an undisciplined mind, so the brain is the hardware, the mind is the software. With an undisciplined software or a patchy or buggy software, the brain will win. Welcome to the Ultimate Guide to Partnering. In this podcast, Vince Menzione, a proven industry
1: sales and partner executive, brings together technology leaders in this forum to discuss transformational trends and to deconstruct successful strategies to thrive and survive in the rapid age of cloud transformation. And now your host, Vince Menzion. welcome to The Ultimate Guide to Partnering. I'm Vince Menzio, your host. My very special guest and my gift to you at the end of this very different year is to share a pretty incredible conversation with someone I respect and hold in very high regard, Dr. Michael Gervais. Dr. Michael Gervais is a world-renowned high-performance psychologist and industry visionary. Over the course of 20 years working with world-leading performers, Dr. Gervais has developed a psychological framework that allows people to thrive in pressure-packed environments. His clients include the NFL Seattle Seahawks, countless Olympic medalists, MVPs from every major sport, world record holders, internationally acclaimed music artists, and corporate leaders. Michael is the host of the popular Finding Mastery podcast that explores the psychology of some of the world's most extraordinary thinkers and doers. He's had an amazing range of guests, from Satya Nadella to best-selling author Brene Brown to NBA coach Steve Kerr. Michael and NFL coach Pete Carroll founded Compete to Create, an online and live masterclass for the mind. They have worked with more than 30,000 employees at Microsoft alone on the mental skills and strategies to unleash one's potential. While I was at Microsoft, I was privileged to be part of one of the very first teams to apply Michael and Pete's work. In fact, the work that we did with Michael preceded the work that he did with Satya Nadella's leadership team, which was featured in the book, Hit Refresh. I invited Michael to the podcast because I am a student. And I've recognized that many of the fundamentals and principles that he teaches specifically apply to and are first principles of successful partnering. There's a lot to unpack during this conversation. Michael was extremely generous with his time. And in fact, we spent almost two hours in conversation. And because of that, I'm releasing this interview as a two-part series. I hope you listen, and I hope you enjoy this part one of my interview with Dr. Michael Gervais. Michael, welcome to the podcast.
0: Oh, I'm so stoked to be here with you. Thank you.
1: (laughs) I am more than excited. It's an understatement to say I'm excited to welcome you to the Ultimate Guide to Partnering. We got to meet several years ago when I was in Microsoft's public sector leadership team. And I think we were one of the first groups to go through your program at the time.
0: Yeah, you were. And that was like, Man, was that a that that was like one of those really special times in my life trying to sort out something that I was trying to convert the lessons from elite sport into, you know, world leading business. And so I, I wanna just before we jump right into events, I wanna say thank you. And so I'm i I'm stoked to be here with you and you know, roll up our sleeves and talk about what we've come to learn together and the insights that allow people to flourish from the inside out.
1: Well And also, congratulations to you. I mean, an amazing career. I mean, when we first met, yeah, most of your work was around sports, but you've expanded that portfolio quite a bit, advising businesses, an entrepreneur, a podcast host, and an author. Really excited for this conversation today. Cool. Thank you. So let's start with you. Can you describe for our listeners a little bit more
0: about yourself? Sure. Uh, Let's start with the most concrete, which is my training. By trade and training, I am a high-performance psychologist. And so what does that mean? That means that I've been fortunate enough to study the science of excellence. And it's one thing to study the frameworks and the theory and best practices of how the best in the world organize their inner life and how they train their minds and to understand that from a laboratory perspective. And I'm blessed to be able to stand on the shoulders of giants there. The second though part of it is that theory needs to actually materially show up and work in rugged and high-pressured high-stress environments. And so for the last 20 years I've been in those environments, sometimes innovating, sometimes using great science, and the hybrid between those two is what actually I was sharing with you guys early days. And so to describe like how I organize my life, I've got basically my professional life. I've got two basic business strategies. One is a service business, which is I have one or two clients a month where they tend to be the best in the world at what they do. And we go deep and we figure out like a self-discovery process to be able to help them understand themselves better so that they can layer on top of it psychological skills that they can train so that they can be more present, more confident. So they can train to be more calm, more poised. Those are trainable skills. Those are not something that people are born with. And so we're teaching the mechanics of resilience and how to actually train to become more resilient. That's the kind of service delivery, which is, oh, let's call it more of a passion project for me. And then the other part of the professional landscape is sharing those best practices at scale and to try to reach one in five people in every environment that I'm fortunate enough to be in. And what does that mean? I'll just, I'll stop with that with this last little comment here is that my purpose in life is to help people live in the present moment more often so that they can meet the demands of the moment and be able to pivot and adjust towards exploring their potential. And to live in the present moment more often means we have to train our mind. And so that's how I enter most conversations. You know, it's like, let's figure out how you can be your very best.
1: And can you tell our listeners about the path that led to this spot in your life?
0: Yeah. So I'll go back to, I'll share a story with you if you don't mind. Yeah, I was 15 years old and I'm going to go way back, but I think this illustrates uh, the beginnings and the origins, if you will. And I was a, a good little athlete, you know, in Southern California. And my sport of choice was surfing and i think that that's important to note not because i was you know some burnout hippy dippy kind of surfer dude but i actually didn't like the way it felt to be coached by adults i didn't like yeah. the artificial nature of man-made rules and now that if you think about a 15 year old you go oh so kind of a you know counterculture you know kid rebellious yeah. kid and a little bit a little bit, that was the case. But I found surfing to be so um, compelling because it was me with mother nature and the rules were clear. If you hesitate, there's consequences. So it required a full commitment of attention, a deep understanding of how to express that right balance between confidence and humility. Because when you're working with mother nature, I mean, it is, it's unforgiving in many respects.
1: Especially oh, surfing, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So here's here's the drill, is that I was, it's going to sound hubristic, of hubris right now, but it, I mean this with humility, is that I was good, but that was in free surfing. That was when there was no judges. That was when there was no uh, competition at, at stake. As soon as the competition started to take place, and there was judges and, and family and friends on the beach, and there was scores and rankings, I couldn't do it. I couldn't figure it out, Vince. So I went from this, you know, kind of hardcore, deeply respected in my community, free surfer, pulling into heavy situations, not needing any affirmation, not, you know, just being the 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 kid that was about it. And then all of a sudden, when the lights turned on and there was judgment and critique, I became—I was unable to access what I I knew I could do. So it was like overnight, I couldn't access my craft. And I knew my physical skill didn't train. My technical skill didn't train, uh, didn't change. What changed was my mind. And I'm 15 years old. I'm in a competition. I'm a mess. And this gentleman, I was a 15-year-old surfing against, you know, grown adults. And he paddles by me. We surfed all the time together. And he said, Gervais, you got to stop worrying about what could go wrong. And it was just, yeah. And I was like, how did he know? How did he know? Like, what did he just do? Because all I was thinking about, Vince, was like all the things that could go wrong, what they were going to think about me after. It's like I was a 15-year-old kid trying to sort out how to be okay. And he paddled away. And now let me set the scene. It's about 7 a.m. in the morning, beautiful conditions, ideal surf conditions, only three people in the water. I could choose any wave just about I wanted. And I'm a mess. And he drops this gem on me. And I thought, what do I do with that?
1: (laughs) Did that get in your head even more? I mean, that's a, that's another form of judgment, isn't it?
0: You know, it came off as like the sage, you know, not like yep. kind of begrudging or not. It didn't come off any way, uh, any way other than the sage. And so I thought for a moment and I said, well, shit, let me start thinking about what could go right. And so I started using my imagination and I started to get more in touch with like what could be good. And sure enough, like I felt ah, different. And so I got out of the water and I was like, what was that? Come to find out there's a whole discipline called psychology. And that was the beginnings of me saying, oh, there's something to the mind and I need to learn it because I'm an anxious dude. And come to learn, like I had not only performance anxiety, but looking back, you know, I had some good old general anxiety that was pervasive across my relationships, my work life, you know, at school. and And so it set me down the path.
1: That's amazing because, well, I think all of us in the business world and sports as well, I mean, we we deal with that mind, that monkey mind that we all live with, right? That reptilian brain yeah. and all the aspects of that. So what did you do next? Like, what did that lead you to at that point?
0: Okay. So this will maybe scare you a little bit, but I got a zero on my PSAT and then wow. I got a zero on my SAT. And so- All right.
1: How do you get a zero? I don't think that's <laughs> not possible
0: you got to not you got to show up to get something. So I didn't show up to either of them. So I'm um, it's now now fast forward to my senior year and my parents are kind of in our kitchen and they're like son we tried. And but we just couldn't figure out how to really guide you to the college experience. And you know, you've got a choice to make. You got to either move out and get a job and kind of be on your own and follow your passion or if you want, we'll pay for you to go to, you know, school and you can live here. But that school has to be a Junior college, a um, community college, and I mm. thought to myself, "I'm not going to community college. <laughs> you know that that's for those kind of rejects or something." And this is yeah. me being a 15 year old, <laughs> one of them, you know, like. And so, and I thought to myself, second beat, third beat, four beats, and I'm like, "Wait a minute, I can still surf all day long. I know how to do like this fake school thing slash surfing. Let me do that. Let me play that out for a couple more years, and then lo and behold." my first semester there was a uh, three professors at the school and my parents made the decision they said okay listen we're going to i came from humble beginnings my parents were not in the upper class i didn't i was going to be the first kid to go to college in my family mm. and so i don't want to paint this kind of image that we had it all together you know and yeah. so so they scraped their chips together and they put me actually instead of a community college into a, a private two year college and it was a big deal and i knew that i had to actually take it somewhat seriously but i was still more passionate about surfing than school by any means
1: but it was a big deal for your parents at this point
0: yeah big deal yeah and first semester this is the cool part of the story there was three professors that were best friends one was this sounds like a bad joke one was a theologian one was a philosopher and one was a psychologist dr Cuzio, dr Zenka, and dr perkins and they saw this now 17 18 year old kid kind of having no clue but like a spark. I had a spark because I was pushing edges. And one of them kind of put his arm around me and was like, hey, kid, let me show you about the invisible world. I was like, what is that? And so the three of them, I fell in love with that trinity, if you will, between those three, the spiritual, philosophical, and psychological exploration. And they lit me on fire by challenging me. And I didn't carry a book in high school. I didn't study. I didn't I did I did show up to my SAT. Come this first semester, second semester, I was on fire and I felt like ah oh, this is stimulating. No one had to ask me to read more than what was on the syllabus. I was reading more. I was studying. I was trying to figure it out. I Vince I I, I tested into remedial math in my first, you know, <laughs> go at school, at college. And so I had to take all of these extra classes to just kind of catch up. Twenty-one units a semester, where full time is fifteen. And I kept surfing. And so therein lies the origin story. It came from pain, came from boredom, and it came from just not figuring out what was stimulating. And that was the beginnings. I'm going
1: to peel back one more layer on this. Like, okay, there was a spark, but what was the connection point? Like, what what caused that spark? Like, what what
0: ignited you? I guess. So there was. I'm going to stay with. Dr. Cusio for a minute, which was the psychology professor, the psychologist. And he says, um, one day I just felt close to him. And mind you, I had this anxiety thing that I was trying to figure out. And so I came up to him and we're walking to class and I said, Hey doc, can I talk to you for a minute? I'm trying to sort something out in life. And he's like, yeah, sure. Mike, And so we're walking to class across this kind of, it was called the mall. So it was a green kind of pasture in, in between buildings. And I said, and now I'm, as I'm sharing this with him, I am anxious. And my voice is cracking just a little bit. My body is tremoring just a little bit. And it's a friendly conversation with a person I deeply trust. And I said, hey, I'm I'm having a hard time in my relationship with my girlfriend at the time, now wife. And I said, you know, I'm just like, I'm having a hard time. And I started to explain what was going on. And he interrupted me in the middle of me about to explain where I'm struggling and he looks at me, and he pauses, and we square up on shoulders, and he says, "Mike, when the phone rings, do you have to answer it?" I was like, "What the, dude? These psychology people are freaking weird. Like, what?" <laughs> and I was like, "Man, he just disrespected me. Like, what is that?" So I was befuddled. I didn't know what to do. I went to class, and I just kind of sat there, like totally, like co- totally confused. Two days later, this was like a Tuesday, uh, Tuesday, Thursday class. I go, Doc, on the way to class, can I? Can I can I grab you again? And he's like, sure, Mike, come on. And I start telling the same story. He interrupts me again, almost the same place. He says, when someone knocks on your door, do you have to answer it? Walked away. I was like, what is this? Come to find out. It took me way too long to figure this out, Vince, but this is what he was sharing with me. Hey, dude, you are entertaining the same freaking story over and over and over again. It is a well-rehearsed story. And I just interrupted you. He
1: interrupted your pattern.
0: He interrupted my pattern. And he did it in a weird way, and it was a great gift. And this, what he was also saying in that story is that when you have an intruding thought, like somebody ringing your door or ringing your phone, an intruder to your time, to your to your present moment, you don't have to entertain that thought. Because what I was doing is I was having a you know dinner, and I was inviting this guest in, sharing my meal with them, you know, interrupting my dinner to entertain this person. What am I talking about right now in this material moment with you? I was entertaining a thought that I didn't even want to entertain. And Mm. that is how our minds work. And so it was this incredible like relief when I finally figured it out. No help to him. (laughs) I finally figured out like I'm entertaining stuff that I don't need to entertain because it's actually destroying my ability to be fully present and to experience a sense of um, peace and happiness and joy and freedom. And so from that point, I realized that there's a, re- a process to relieve anxiety. And that same process is also that sits underneath optimization of how to use my mind towards potential. So there it is, 18-year-old uh, kid trying to sort it out, coming from a ragged you know place and earning my scar tissue of anxiety and uh, having a weird engagement with a professor that fundamentally changed my life. So there you go.
1: It's an amazing story. <laughs> So Michael, what belief has had the biggest and most positive impact on you and why?
0: Oh, that is a cool thought Vince. I would be, there's many beliefs that I hold to be true. And one of the ones that's been incredibly powerful is that everything I need is already inside me. Mm. And there is a framework there that sits on top of a spiritual uh, framework, you know? And so let's just talk about, you know, when I talk about spirit, some people hear religious. And when I talk about framework, some people hear psychology or philosophy. So I'm going to talk about, let me merge those and talk about a spiritual framework is that everything I need, everything you need, I believe is already inside you. What does that mean? It means what is true, beautiful, and good already exists inside you. And so part of our job is to figure out how to work from that place. And what happens for many of us, Vince, is that we feel complete, uh, I'm sorry, we feel incomplete. And that incomplete nature is filled by the need for affirmation, the need for money, the need for recognition, when in reality, everything we need is already inside of us and our job is to express from that place and to deeply connect and share with others. So it is not that we need someone to love us, someone to give to us, someone to recognize us, but our job is to deeply connect to what we already have access to and then share that with others. Now, here's the challenge, is that our brain, our ancient brain, that three pounds of tissue that sits inside our skull, its dictum is survival. So it scans the world to find all the potential dangers, real and or imagined. And in doing so, it keeps us on alert. When that happens with an undisciplined mind, so the brain is the hardware, the mind is the software. With an undisciplined software or a patchy or buggy software, the brain will win. Now, what is this strong software that I'm talking about? It is the psychological part of us that says, not everything's a freaking threat. So let's use a sophisticated filter of a a disciplined, a trained filter, if you will, to interpret events, to make sense of how the world works and I fit in it, how you fit in it. And so everything you need is already inside you. So let's work from a place of high positive regard for the the true nature of the other person. Let's work from that framework. And I think that uh, there's a dignity in that. There's a regard in that that is special and it doesn't it means that you don't need something outside of you. you just have to be able to be okay with working from the inside out. Wow, there's a lot there.
1: <laughs> there's a lot. You know, I've I've been a student of some of your work and I've recently been listening again to your compete to create work that you created with the uh, Pete Carroll. Hmm. I want to peel back on this a little bit here because you're talking about how we interpret our minds. How do we still our we still our minds? We talk about how we learn what our true what's what's in us that's true. I think that's where you talk about personal philosophy and maybe getting to that point and understanding that about ourselves. What are some of the work that you do to help people along that that path?
0: Okay, so. Let's start with a bit of science first, a little of research, and then I'd love to share as many practices as I can with you today. And everything that I'm going to share is already inside of an online training course that in partnership with Coach Carol that we built to help people take these gems and insights and practices and put it into a formal structure. So anything that you want to pull on deeper or go further with is already embedded in an 8-week online course that we think is our our best work when it comes to training and conditioning of the mind, the practice of it. Okay, so let's start with some some research. And the research is, Harvard did a, a study, and it was a 75-year study where they measured, where they tracked people, a longitudinal study. And they were measuring and wanting to understand fulfillment. So at the end, they said, did you feel like your life was fulfilled or not? So some people said yes, and some people said no. Then the people that said yes, they double clicked and asked more questions. You know what the key, find? one of the key findings was, is that those that reported to have a fulfilled life, they grokked with the difficult questions in life. They didn't solve them. They didn't have answers for them, but they wrestled with them. Hmm. What is a difficult question? Okay, who am I? What is my purpose? How do I spend my money? (laughs) What am I going to do for the next generation? So One of the things that we've done in our program is we've developed a self discovery process to assist in the grokking with the difficult questions. When you have a better sense of how life works for you, for humans, if you extrapolate out, it becomes so much easier that you don't have to kind of build everything on the fly, but that you can adjust and pivot and be eloquent in a resilient nature to the unfolding, unpredictable, unknown moment. Each moment is that. It's unpredictable, it's unfolding, and it's unknown. You and I have never been in this moment. We have a history, but we've never been in this moment together. So your job is to pivot and adjust, and my job is to pivot and adjust. And I would say that you will be better at pivoting and adjusting if you have a sense of your personal philosophy in life, if you have a sense of your true purpose, your North Star. So we begin with asking people and walking them through a series of questions what is your personal philosophy? And, and you say, Vince, you say, well, what is that? <laughs> like, what is that? So it's not complicated. It's like, what are your first principles? What are the yeah. principles in your life? Now, watch me on this. What are the principles that guide your thoughts, your words, and your actions? That's what a philosophy is. All of the eleven world religions have a clear philosophy to help you guide your thoughts, your words, and your actions. So you can go to one of the eleven world religions that, you know, four of them have shaped humanity in modern times more than any other kind of book or practice, and and or you can build a hybrid of your own if you were to see that as being more fitting. But the work is to say what are my first principles and write them down, and then if you can get those down on paper, externalize that those core principles, and then maybe put them into a sentence my philosophy is and why get into a sentence because you could probably get a sentence out under duress but if it's a you know 200 page essay on first principles you can't get that out when you're feeling pressure from your boss to you know get a deadline done or you've got a you know a relationship challenge where you feel like you're just like absolutely on the spot and don't know what to say or how to say or convey what you're feeling like you got to have some clarity about first principles to help you when you're in a stressful situation, to line up your thoughts, words, and actions. And then I'll, let me double click one more time. Please the, do. Yeah, the mental skills practicing, okay, the practicing of mental skills. And we practice mental skills just like we practice physical skills, Vince. So you go to a gym and you train physically, we do the same exact thing mentally. But I don't think our field, our science has done a great job of showing, putting handles on the skills. Like you have a handle on a dumbbell (laughs) let me show you i can give you the handles on how to train your mind so you can do sets and reps for confidence sets and reps to be calm sets and reps for deep focus now let's go back upstream to to philosophy when you know your philosophy it will help you adjust to line your thoughts words and actions in a more purposeful way and so that's kind of like one of the big rocks to get in the container and I'll stop talking after this. What is Dr. Martin Luther King's philosophy? What do you think, Vince?
1: I should know this because you discuss this in the book. So I believe it's racial equality for all.
0: Yeah. Is right. I mean, and it's not because you read the book, you know that, you know what he's yep. about. And when you That's think right. about Malala, what is like, hers is about human rights. You know, what about Oh, fill in anyone that you're inspired by, you know, Buddha or Jesus or Confucian. Like we know what they stand for. We know their personal philosophy because it's what they thought about most. It's what they expressed in most rooms or places that they were in. So when they came into environment and their philosophy was clear, everybody else knows it. And so one of the great accelerants to teamwork, to partnerships, to working well with others. Hold on. I want to say this to you. Nobody does it alone, Vince. We need each other. That's why I love you know, the tone of your podcast about partnerships. Nobody does the extraordinary alone. It's too big, it's too complicated. We need each other. And so one of the great accelerants to working well with others is for them to know your philosophy. What are your guiding principles? And for you to know theirs. Because yep. when times get tough and there's stress in an environment, And you've got a little bit of a deeper connection. You know where they're wanting to come from. You can help them. You can stay more connected because you've got that deeper connection with each other. Because what happens for most people, go back how the brain works, they're scanning the world for danger. And when danger is in place, it is natural for us to unlock our arms and try to save our own ass. That's how the fight, flight, freeze thing works. We feel like if you're kind of blowing it over there, and I think you're kind of blowing it, I can't hold you up. Because I got, I got danger too I'm trying to sort out. So we unlock our arms. And it, it's a scarcity mentality, right? Oh, I, that's how
1: I refer to it. That's it. I, we're we're, I we're only concerned it. about our own survival, fight or flight.
0: That's it. And that is that is human nature. So to move into the extraordinary places of high performance, and there's a beauty that I want to add to the tonal note there, not just more money and more fame or more whatever, but really doing some special work towards your upper capabilities. And then when we do it together with others, something very special takes place. So what happens for most teams and organizations, and they have a a hoorah moment in the beginning, and they're like, yes, that's the vision. Yes, that's the mission. I got it. Okay, strategy is on point. Let's lock arms. Let's go take that hill. And then as soon as there's live bullets and it feels like it's not going according to plan, people unlock their arms. And you see it in sport quite easily, you know, and you see it in business uh, more frequently.
1: I love this because this ties in so much to what I teach organizations, right? We, I talk about growth mindset. I talk about having, I call a shared vision, but it also, and I want to unpack on vision versus philosophy for a moment. I think they're somewhat intertwined. Can you make that distinction for our listeners? What is the difference between a personal philosophy and maybe a personal vision
0: or a vision? Sure. Yeah. So personal philosophy are the first principles, you know, the principles, the unwavering principles that you're committing to. Again, to line up your thoughts, your words, and your actions. That's a philosophy. And a vision is when you use your imagination to see something that has yet to take place. And you believe that it's so compelling that you will do whatever it takes to experience that, to make that a reality. So a shared vision is when two people or 200 people or 2,000 or 200,000 people are using their imagination to see a state that has not yet happened, but it is so compelling that they are willing and wanting and motivated to work toward it. And that it's not complicated. You know, that's what a vision really is. And what we do for in elite sport, and I'm hoping to share this practice in high performing and world-class business practices is that the way that we help shape a vision for individuals like athletes is that we need to be, and I'm talking about like a coach, right? We need to be so present that we are capturing glimpses of them at their very best. And it we go, oh, there it is. And we we archive it in our memory. And then as soon as we possibly can, you know, if you can do it within three seconds, it, it is far greater than if you can only share this, what I'm about to say, in two minutes or two hours or two days. You want to try to get as close as you possibly can. When you see the brilliance in somebody and you're seeing their capacity being expressed, their potential being expressed, and you, you call it out and you share that with them and they nod their head and they say, yeah, that's it. That felt great. That's it. And then you both nod your heads together that that's what you're going to work toward. That, that type of partnership, that goes a long way. And so that's how we help actually create a vision for another person and potentially a shared vision. But we need both people to nod their heads for it to be real. And that nod also signifies, I'm going to hold you to that standard. Are you going to hold yourself to that standard? And then both people go, yeah, that is awesome. So that's what I think, a component of great leadership is, is to see the brilliance in others and to clarify that image and idea with the other person. And then for the two or many to, to hold each other to the standards that will lead to that more often.
1: So clarify what success looks like. Like for me with organizations, I'll stand up with a partner of Microsoft's and say, your joint vision with Microsoft to, is to be the leader in your particular sector, like up on stage with Microsoft talking about this amazing success you've had together, or maybe in the field, there's two salespeople that are winning business together because they ultimately believe that their joint solution is the best thing for their customer or for solving a challenge.
0: Yes. So that's at a more systemic level. And then when we drill down into the individual's, you know, that are going to lead to that. So we can, you and I could create a shared vision for our mutual businesses. And then we can go, yeah, yeah, that seems good. Then we have to drill down underneath of it and say, okay, what are the standards that you're going to hold to? And I'm going to hold to so that that thing is actually materially can take place. And I'm using this the word standard rather than strategy, rather than anything else, because I we need to start with the standards that we're going to hold ourselves to what we've caught a glimpse of that could be. And anyways, that's how it typically works in elite sport in a thoughtful way. There are plenty of opportunities in elite sport that point to this next human up mentality. And you know, super transactional. If you don't have it, you gotta go. And there are some organizations that do that and they do that and they win a lot. But it there it's a bit of an empty meal. You know, it doesn't really feel that good even when you win because there's a disservice to the human condition for the winning for the trophy.
1: Thank you, Michael so appreciate you. As with each of my episodes, I appreciate your support. Please subscribe on your favorite platform, like, comment, tell your friends about Ultimate Guide to Partnering and where they can find us. And I'd love your feedback. Please like the podcast and provide comments or reach out to me at Vince Menzion on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also like and follow Ultimate Guide to Partnering on our Facebook page, or drop me a line at vincem at ultimate-partnerships.com. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Ultimate Partnerships. Ultimate Partnerships helps you get the most results from your partnerships. Get partnerships right, optimize for success, deliver results. For more information, go to ultimate-partnerships.com.